Here's Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota making her pitch to voters on February 1st in Sioux City, Iowa, ahead of the Iowa caucuses on February 3rd. The following audio is courtesy of Reuters. So uh, I think you all know I would have uh, thought for sure when I started in the middle of that blizzard on that snowy day making that announcement uh, that this week I would have been in Iowa all week, maybe uh, doing a redo of all 99 counties. Uh, But instead, I had a duty, and I was there. And I am betting, based on the crowd that we saw today in the Quad Cities, and what we see here, and what we've been seeing all over the states the last few weeks, that the people of Iowa understand uh, that I'm in the arena, that I have a job to do, that that is a positive, that is a plus. And I think you all, if you watch any of the coverage from what happened last week, Uh, you saw what I raised actually in the debate in Des Moines. I said if my Republican colleagues are afraid to even find out about what the witnesses say, just four witnesses, they may as well give, this is what I said, the president a crown and a scepter. Because they are basically uh, making him the king. And they are not, they are not uh, following the laws of this country. And I was shocked. I thought, okay, I don't know how they're going to vote on impeachment. But I don't know why you wouldn't want to hear from the witness in the room where it happened. So much so that that is the name of John Bolton's book uh, that is coming out. And when you look at what he knows and what's going to happen here, the truth is not going to come out five years from now. The truth isn't going to come out five months from now. The truth is coming out five weeks from now or even five days from now. And why they wouldn't have at least here the witness that knows what happened, whose early revelations that we've seen this week support every single thing that the career military and the career diplomat said that we heard from over in the House. Um, So that is our moment, and it was so close with this 51 to 49 vote. It was so close for witnesses, with Mitt Romney, the former Republican presidential candidate, speaking out strongly for witnesses. so that's what we're dealing with. And I think um, what, how you place this in the election is this. To me, that is just one part of what's going on here. It's kind of a microcosm of what I've been talking about from the day that I announced in the snow. Uh, because I believe that we need an economic check on this president. You see what he promised with pharmaceutical prices going down didn't deliver on that. What he promised with infrastructure, when you've seen uh, the floods in western Iowa as well as what we saw in eastern Iowa, Uh, when you've seen what he promised when it comes to um, uh, peoples um, in rural areas and what would happen and how he had the backs of our farmers and now we see the latest report that there's been a 25% increase in farm bankruptcies uh, in just the last few years and you think of what he did with his trade war and with the oil waivers to those big oil companies. All of that happened. But I want to step back a little from that and put yourself in the shoes of people who maybe didn't vote in 2016 or maybe they're in those 31 counties in Iowa that voted for Barack Obama, some of them by sizable margins, and then they turned around and voted for Donald Trump. So for some people out there, they actually don't agree with everything we say on the debate stage. I don't agree with everything that's said on the debate stage. But they know this. They know that this election is more than just an economic check. It is a decency check. It is a patriotism check. 
It is a values check. And there are tons of people out there that are watching all this happening uh, that are moderate Republicans, independents, of course our fired up Democratic base. And they know that the heart of this country, this is what unifies them, the heart of this country is so much bigger than the heart of the guy in the White House. That's the thing. And when I talk about a patriotism check, I'm talking about a president that was at the G20 standing next to Vladimir Putin and a reporter asked, well, what about uh, the interference by Russia uh, in our election? And what did he do? He doesn't say, yes, that's what my intelligence people found. We must protect our... He looks at Vladimir Putin and he makes a joke about it. Think about it. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have lost their lives standing up for democracy. That is what World War II was about. When I was out in Waterloo, we talked about uh, the five brothers there who lost their lives in World War II, who lost their lives standing up for democracy. You think about those four little girls during the height of the civil rights movement in that church in Alabama who lost their lives. They were innocents simply because they were trying to be part of the democracy and other people were trying to push it away from them. Every great moment in our country's history and every bad moment actually have been about democracy, the rights under our constitution. And this president, he turns to a ruthless dictator and makes a joke about it. That's what I'm talking about, the patriotism check. And what does it translate into votes? For me, the first sign of it was a guy in Minnesota who was a cattle rancher. And he took me on a tour of his cattle ranch on an ATV where we were dodging in and out of these big cows. And I thought, this is not a good way to die. Um, and then... When the tour ended, we went into his house, everyone had left, and he looked at me, he said, you know, we voted for Trump. And I said, what do you mean? You mean your family? You mean the ranchers? And he said, no, I don't like to talk about myself, so I always say we. And he said, we did it because we were mad about health care. And he said, but then we saw him standing in front of the wall. And I say, the wall isn't really built. He said, no, 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 the CIA wall. He remembered the day after the inauguration when Donald Trump gave this incredibly partisan speech in front of a wall covered in the stars of CIA agents who had lost their lives in the line of duty. They don't even have their names on it because they were anonymous. It's a sacred wall. And Trump gave this partisan speech about the size of his crowd. And this guy saw it. And then he said months and months and months later, it, the last straw was the Boy Scout rally. And he said he remembered that. He said because he was a Boy Scout. And then at that moment I said, oh, my husband was a Boy Scout. So my husband is one of six brothers. His um, um, parents had four boys. His mom really wanted a girl, got pregnant again, and had identical twin boys. <laughs> and they uh, grew up in a trailer home in Mankato. And they had triple bunk beds. And his parents were really active in Scouts. And in the end... Five of the six boys became Eagle Scouts. But I, yes, yeah, yes. Great applause. But I never want to say which one didn't make it because I don't want to embarrass my husband. So that, so the, I was talking to that guy about this and then he says, you know, but for me when I saw Donald Trump give that partisan speech to this whole room full, uh, whole jamboree actually, outdoor event of Scouts, he said, 
that was it for me. I decided what I did, it wasn't patriotic. For me, it wasn't patriotic. Tear comes down his cheek. The guy in New Hampshire and a line of people that are taking photos, everyone has these happy stickers on that says, I'm a climate change voter, uh, I'm a Supreme Court voter, and this guy has no sticker. I said, oh, sir, you don't have a sticker. And he says, well, yeah, that, that's because I was a Trump voter, and these are my neighbors, and they don't know, so don't say anything about it. And he goes, but I am not voting for him again. So I want us, I guess my first piece of profound advice is we better not screw this up. Uh, because we have people out there. You think of what just happened in Louisiana where we reelected a Democratic governor. In Kentucky, where Mitch McConnell now has a Democratic governor. That was a big coalition. That was a coalition of fired up Democrats and moderate Republicans and independents. And the other thing those two states have in common besides being redder than Iowa uh, is this. And by the way, if we can win down there, we can win the U.S. Senate race in the state of Iowa. But the thing that those two states have in common is someone went down there and campaigned the night before. Donald Trump. He campaigned against him. So my one question is, where can we send him next? <laughs> so you think about that and that coalition, and you've got to translate it into this election. And um, one of the things I think we forget is that for a lot of people, they might be like, I don't really like him. They know they turn the volume off or they mute the TV uh, when he goes on TV because they don't want their kids to see it. And it's a decency check. I actually thought about it a lot when I was in Primgar, Iowa. I had read about this guy uh, named Joseph Welch who went to uh, Grinnell and grew up in a major uh, big family, but they were humble, they were immigrants, and he went on uh, to become uh, the Army Council, the highest ranking lawyer in the United States Army. And during those Joseph McCarthy hearings, when Senator McCarthy was going after people because of their uh, political beliefs, uh, because of their supposed political beliefs, uh, because, and he would have them blacklisted so they couldn't work, and then he brought it out in the national limelight in a big way at this hearing, and people were afraid to stand up to him because they thought they would lose their jobs or their family members would. One guy stood up from Primgar, Iowa, Joseph Welch, and he is the one that looked McCarthy in the eyes and said, Sir, have you no sense of decency? At long last, have you no sense of decency? This is that decency moment. A president that wakes up every morning and sends these mean tweets, goes after immigrants, goes after people of color, belittles people, including in his own party, people like John McCain. He has done all those things. So I don't want us to forget that, and it actually bleeds into how we talk about him, because yes, he's a bully, he's a racist, all those things, but remember, and they are bad things, remember the other thing, is that there are a bunch of people in the middle of the country, and I went to these states of Pennsylvania that we shouldn't have lost in 2016, and Michigan, and Wisconsin, and Ohio, and of course Iowa, and even Minnesota, that Hillary got her lowest percentage of victory, and she won, but it was the lowest percentage of vote that she got uh, in any state. So my plan after going to all those states and talking to voters in those states is that we are going to build a beautiful blue wall of Democratic votes around those states and we're going to make Donald Trump pay for it. And those, 
those workers, the carpenters in Pennsylvania, the dock workers in Michigan, the dairy farmers in Wisconsin, they say this. They say when something goes wrong in their life and they don't have the money to pay for insulin for their kid um, and they've got to save the injectors, people actually do that because insulin has gotten so high priced or they don't have the money to uh, pay the rent or the mortgage, what do they do? They just have to get another job or they have to get a loan or their spouse has to get another job. And what does this guy do when something goes wrong for him? He whines. He literally whines. Think of him walking by that helicopter whining at the media. He blames other people. He blames Barack Obama. He does that all the time. He just did that in the last few weeks. He blames the head of the Federal Reserve, who he appointed. Uh, he blames the city of Baltimore. He blames, this is my all-time favorite, the entire country of Denmark. He does that. That's what he does. And so when you think about how to talk about him, you remember that, and you can tell people this, because you know people that are ready to come on board, that are maybe thinking of caucusing, or they're at least going to think of who they're going to vote for in the general election. You remind them uh, that this guy, he got $413 million over the course of his life from his dad. And he now lives in the nicest house, and he's got the best job, and he's still complaining all the time. Me, my grandpa worked 1,500 feet underground in the mines up in northern Minnesota, the iron ore mines. Every day he'd go down in this cage with his lunch bucket that my grandma would pack, and he was so unsafe back then, and the only way those mines got safer, because my dad still remembers the caskets in the church, um, because it was so unsafe, and the whistle would blow, and people would run there, and they wouldn't know whose dad died or whose husband died. And the only way it got safer was because of unions, by the way. And my grandpa, he ended up saving money with my grandma in a coffee can in the basement to send my dad to a two-year community college. You cannot fit $413 million in a coffee can in the basement. But this was my family's trust. And I figure if people give you an opportunity, whether it's a parent or a grandparent, whether it's a neighbor, a coworker, whether it is someone um, that a teacher at a school, that you go into the world not with a sense of entitlement, like Donald Trump, you go into the world with a sense of obligation, an obligation to lift others up instead of pushing them down, an obligation to bring people with you instead of hoarding it for yourself. And when I think of my background, it is this. I am the granddaughter of the iron ore miner. I am a daughter of a teacher. My mom, who grew up in Milwaukee, moved to Minnesota and taught second grade until she was 70 years old. I am the daughter of a teacher and a newspaper man. I am the first woman elected to the US Senate from the state of Minnesota and a candidate for president of the United States. And that. That is because we live in a country of shared dreams that no matter where you come from or who you know or the color of your skin or where you worship or who you love, that you can make it in the United States of America. And that's why this a simple idea of bringing people with us instead of shutting them out, of having a candidate uh, who uh, for people who are tired of the noise and the nonsense and extremes that they know they have a home, that is going to be important because I'm not just telling stories. Look over there in Kansas. We now have a Democratic governor, Laura Kelly, who beat Chris Kobach. In Michigan, in Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer won in the state of Michigan. 
Uh, you look all over the country. It's not necessarily the celebrities that win these races or the most famous people. You know where I'm going with this. It is the people that people can relate to, that match the states, that have ideas and a plan to turn those ideas into action, which, by the way, is the difference between a plan and a pipe dream, that knows how she's going to pay for it, that's me, that makes it very clear what we need to do, and that basically reaches out to people. And that's how I have won all my elections, and that is how I have governed, and that is why I have passed over 100 bills as the lead Democrat in Washington more than anyone else that's running for president that's in Congress. So the other thing we need, and I think you know what it is, and that is an optimistic economic agenda for this country. That got lost in 2016. And we need to bring that back because so many of the challenges have not been met. Uh, the challenges, this is like the best baby in the world there. It's best audience, happy, sort of. Uh, the the uh, challenges I'd lead with is health care. Um, I remind you that the Affordable Care Act uh, is right now nearly 10 points more popular than the President of the United States. So that is why I am in favor of building on that act instead of blowing it up. Um, and why I'm in favor of one uh, nonprofit public option, something Barack Obama wanted to do from the beginning to bring premiums down. It's why I'm in favor of taking on the pharmaceutical companies because they think they own Washington and they don't own me. For years, I have led the bill to unleash the power of 45 million seniors to be able to better negotiate prices under Medicare. They literally, before I got to Congress, got a ban written into law that says that Medicare is not allowed to negotiate less expensive drugs. They did that. Medicaid can, VA can. That's why it's less expensive to buy the drugs. They did that. And I now have over 30 co-sponsors on that bill. And as president, I will be able to get it done. We have bringing in less expensive drugs from other countries. In Minnesota, we can see Canada from our porch. This is something a president can do herself. This is a bill, McCain did it with me when we lost him, which by the way, as I sat in that chamber all week, I kept thinking if only John McCain was here because he would have stood up, he would have stood up. But he led that bill with me for years to bring in the less expensive. Chuck Rassley has now led the bill with me. And how do I know we can get Republican support for this? Because Bernie and I joined together and did an amendment one night around midnight, and we got 14 Republican senators to vote for it. Now, they may have been too tired, but they <laughs> voted for it. We can put a cap on the price of farming. There is so much we can do. That is, issue is ripe. No one has done anything about it. Other things, uh, mental health care, addiction, some of the biggest problems we deal with in rural Iowa and no one has really taken on, especially the issue of mental health care, when one in five Americans struggle with it. And I have a plan with a pay for and a way to get this done. Uh, and for me, this is all personal. My dad struggled with alcoholism my whole life growing up. Uh, by the time he got his third DWI, when John and I, right around when we got married, the judge said, that's it, you gotta decide treatment or jail. And my dad chose treatment and it changes life, and in his words, he was pursued by grace. And I think everyone should have that same right, and he is now 91, in assisted living, sober, AA group visits him there, and in his words, it's hard to get a drink around here anyway. <laughs> you move to the other issue of long-term care. Um, and I, my dad, to end the story, 
He got long-term care insurance a long time ago, which was amazing that he got that. That's how it's paying for him to stay in this house with 16 people. In a year and a half, it, it ends. And then he goes into his savings, which isn't as much as we thought because he got married three times, whole nother story. But so then he goes on Medicaid. And I know exactly when that day is. And I went and talked to Catholic Elder Care because he won't be able to stay where he is now because they don't keep med take Medicaid. And so he'll go there. Um, and his story is actually a happier story than so many other people's because uh, not everyone got long-term care insurance. This is not just an issue for our seniors. This is an issue for every family because there are so many people my age and younger who are taking care of their kids. At the same time, they're taking care of their aging parents. So what does this mean? Strong Social Security, which is actually fairly easy to do. Number two, strong Medicaid and Medicare. And then number three, Finally, let's adapt our laws for the circumstances we're in with our aging population. More people want to stay at home. We should make it easier for people to get help to stay at home, short of going on Medicaid. Uh, we should make it easier and help them with premiums for long-term care insurance. We can do this because otherwise we literally have done nothing. We're seeing this big change in our population, which is great. And we have yet to have a presidential candidate, and I am the one that is taking this on in a big way. Yet all President Trump wants to do is relitigate the Affordable Care Act. I want to build on it and build on it and take on these major challenges. Other challenges, education. Um, I was teasing my um, opponents up on the debate stage. And by the way, we're having another debate in New Hampshire on Friday. Looking forward to that. And I said, you know what? I finally decided you guys aren't thinking big enough because I don't think the solution is just the bumper sticker solution, free college for all. I think that the solution is matching our educational system with our economy. So let's do that for a minute. Let's look at where all these job openings are gonna be that we need to fill not only, we need to fill them for our economy, uh, but when you think about like long-term care, look at, look at this, we're gonna have over a million openings that we have no idea how we're gonna fill right now for home health care workers in the next 10 years. And if you don't have a home health care worker in your area or that can help you, um, it's not gonna be as easy to grow old with dignity. Uh, secondly, uh, nursing assistants. We're gonna have over 100,000 openings for nursing assistants. We do not know how we're gonna fill them. Uh, we are going, those are one and two year degree jobs. We're gonna have over 70,000 openings for electricians. We are not gonna have a shortage of sm sports marketing degrees. Okay, sorry, whoever got one out there or, or whose kid got one. We are not gonna have a shortage of that. We are gonna have a shortage of plumbers. So what do we do? Well, first of all, we invest big time in K through 12 and in preschool, that matters. And secondly, Secondly, oh, and what we do, you know, I have this 100-day plan uh, with 137 things we can do without Congress that are legal all over the board. Um, the first thing we can do in the first 100 seconds is fire Betsy DeVos. We can, we can then uh, do free one and two-year degrees, apprenticeships, union apprenticeships, all these things that are going to help us fill a bunch of those jobs to steer more people into those jobs. Some of them are really well paying, like the trades. 
Uh, some of them are not as well paying, like the home health care workers. And then we've got to figure out how we have child care and retirement and work family leave. All those things apply to jobs like that so that people will want to take those jobs, including an increased wage. So that's where I want to put the money when you look at, okay, we're going to get money in because we can reverse some of those really bad Trump tax cuts, the ones that he then went down to Mar-a-Lago after he signed it and said to all his friends in a room, this fancy ballroom, you just got a lot richer. Was anyone in there from this room? Because I don't want to embarrass anyone in case you were. I, I, but the point is, I bet no one from Sioux City or this area was in that room. And so when you look at that, where well, we can take that kind of money and put it into things like this. And that's why I know it's easy to come up with a bumper sticker. It's harder to do it like I'm doing it, but it's the best way to do it. It's the way we win and the way we get it done. Uh, next thing. Rural issues, I am the only one on the debate stage and in this race right now that asked, thank you Penny, that asked to be on the Agriculture Committee, that have served there valiantly, that has negotiated through three farm bills, including one with my chairman at the time, Tom Harkin, um, and um, have been able to get a ton of things done for rural America and have a keen understanding that one size doesn't fit all whether it's hospitals, whether it's education, whether it's rural broadband, uh, when it comes to our rural areas. And that bleeds into another area, which is um, climate change. And you know what we've seen with infrastructure and the needs for levees and things like that being fixed, something this president has not done. Um, but part of that is climate change. And I can tell you this, I think of this not just from a coastal perspective, and I've been to the Greenland ice sheet, and I've seen what's the devastation in Florida and places like that, the fires in California, but it is also in the middle of the country. Because as you know, I'm gonna be able to stand at that debate stage and say to Donald Trump, this isn't flyover country to me, I live here. And those people that you are treating like poker chips in one of your bankrupt casinos, they are my friends and they are my neighbors. So when it comes to climate change, we have to tell the story of Fran, uh, who outside a Pacific Junction with her binoculars, who had me look through them and said, this is my house, I bought it with my husband, we live there with our four-year-olds, and I bought this house, it's so sturdy, it has horse hair in the plaster, it stood there for nearly 100 years, and I love the kitchen, I love the way the light comes in the windows in the kitchen, and she said, and now I say, where's the kitchen? She said, it's in water, the whole first floor. And she, I said, well, this is the river, Fran, because the water's going by, I said, is this the river? And I thought, Fran, you bought a house on the river. She said, no, no, that's the road. She said, the river is two and a half miles away and it's never gotten this close before. That is climate change in Iowa. Increasing homeowners insurance, that is climate change in Iowa. And we must make that economic case. Where does that lead us to? One, get back into the International Climate Change Agreement on day one. <laughs> Two, Clean power standards, those were negotiated during the Obama administration. Uh, they got a lot of input from people. We can get those done. Three, gas mileage standards, something Donald Trump threw out the window that would actually make it less costly to drive your car, better for the environment. Number four, uh, sweeping legislation when it comes to climate change and making sure that that money that we get in by either doing a renewable electricity standard nationally 
or a, a tax on carbon or whatever we do, that that money comes right in and goes back to the people that are gonna see changes in their bills for heating and cooling. We have to make it airtight. That's the only way to make it work policy-wise for people, and it's the only way to pass it. Because especially in the Midwest, people were weary. They were like, when we debated this before, we have to make it. I have not just the head for this, but the heart. Uh, when I was growing up and my grandpa worked in those mines, they'd open and close, open and close. I remember once driving out of Duluth with my dad, and there was a big billboard, and it said, last one to leave, turn off the lights. So when I look at things like that, I think what areas are going to be affected by this? There'll be good things for Iowa, because you're the Saudi Arabia of wind. Well, that's what... North Dakota says that too, so, but we won't, we won't tell them that. Um, but there's technology here in that spirit of Norman Borlaug um, and the research that's going on and the conservation efforts and what we can do with cover crops and the like with incentives in the farm bill for our farmers. There's good things, but there's going to be areas of the country that's going to see change. And so it's really important to use that money also to put incentives in place so that there can be more jobs. So why do I spend time on this? Because I really want you to think it through. So when people talk to you about climate change, that you can give the arguments and you can go there with it because we do have to deal with it. We're already seeing the effects uh, on our farmlands. Uh, last thing that I want to say is the number one thing that unites all of us is that we want to win. And we want to win, and we don't just want to win by a little bit, as sweet as that will be, and eke by a victory at four in the morning. Because if we do that, that state won't be Iowa. That district won't be JD's. What we want to do is we want to win big. And the way that we win big and send Mitch McConnell packing so we can get these bills done on prescription drugs, exactly what I've said, um, it's like a graveyard over there around his office. There are 400 bills sitting on his desk. The democracy bills, um, the farm bill, there's just so many things. The agriculture, there's so much we can do. Mm -hmm. That's right, I was just gonna mention that. Gun safety legislation. And by the way, I come from a hunting state, just like Iowa, and I look at these proposals and I say, uh, whether they're universal background checks or magazine limits, and I say, do they hurt my Uncle Dick in the deer stand? They don't. They don't. And we have a moment in time, a few months back, when I saw those numbers, I haven't seen them recently, but the majority of Trump voters want universal background checks. The majority of hunters want universal background checks. There's absolutely no reason we can get this done. The public is with us, but we have to win big. And that gets to me. I will make my last case for me to you in Sioux City. This is my deal. I have won every single race, every place, every time, all the way back to fourth grade, where my slogan that I have since abandoned was all the way with Amy Kay. <laughs> I have won in the rural red, red district held by a Republican congressman right that borders this district, right? You know that. I have won that district big time, why? Because I don't just go where it's comfortable, I go where it's uncomfortable. Just as I visited all 99 counties here, I am in touch and know exactly what's going on in rural areas. And then it's not just going there or giving a speech. I actually get things done. I have won by sizable margins in that district that borders North and South Dakota every single time. I have won in Northern with the Steelworkers, and I have won in the middle of the state in Michelle Bachman's district every single time. That, that is what we call receipts not just talking points. It's actually bringing people with me, flipping the state house every single time I run, we flip it to Democrat. Because I see a coalition 
that is much bigger than what some people see. I see fired up Democrats and I see people in rural and suburban and I want to bring them with us and we really need to bring them with us in this general election. Number two, so remember that, I have one. Number two, call anyone in Minnesota for a job reference. Over five million people. Now most of them voted for me, some of them didn't, but you can ask them, you have friends and neighbors there. Uh, even the ones that didn't vote for me will tell you I get things done and that I'm someone that can win big and I do it every single time. Uh, we are building this incredible coalition around the country. I was so pleased today to get the endorsement of Linda Sanchez, uh, who is the congresswoman from California and a leader in the Hispanic community. I am so proud to have seen our polls where we are going up and up nationally um, without having, uh, you know, running a Super Bowl ad. Um, and I am so proud of the support we have in Iowa. We're in two polls this week. Uh, we were in third place. Uh, we are, we are, uh, one of my friends uh, sent me a text and it said, congratulations on your insurgency. And I think she meant surge. And I think there's a few reasons that this is going on. I think the first one is people are stepping back and saying, who can really beat Donald Trump? We know we have to win in the Midwest. So let's just start being serious about this. And we also have to do well on the coast and all over this country. And we can actually win some states in the South, by the way, that we shouldn't forget, as well as the West. So we've got to look at that for the whole country. Uh, the second thing is they're looking at who can really run against him. And when you think of this guy, actually, I was thinking the other day as I was sitting in the Senate chamber where we had a lot of time to think um, of this old story of Franklin Roosevelt. When he died, they put his body on a train and went across America. And this guy was standing on the side of the tracks with his hat down over his chest and he was sobbing and a reporter says to him, sir, did you know Franklin Roosevelt? Did you know the president? And the guy says, no. I didn't know the president, but the president knew me. That is empathy. That is a president that was able to reach out to people and bring them with him. And that's what Donald Trump lacks. So you gotta think not in terms of is does someone look or act or is the tallest person in the room, James Madison was my height, five foot four, or are they the loudest person? No, no, no. It's something very different that we want against Donald Trump. Um, so, I'm asking for your help. I never, as I told you in my wildest dreams, thought that all this last week I couldn't be here. So I need you to run for me. Paul Wellstone was one of my political mentors. And the last year of his life, uh, when he tragically died in that plane crash uh, with Sheila and their daughter Marsha and their beloved staff, that year was the year that he took a really brave vote against the Iraq War. And he was still gonna win that race. He took that brave vote, and the other thing about that year that I will never forget, he had told the state he had MS. And his whole thing for years in many elections, when he beat really wealthy guy that no one thought that he could beat, was that he would run back and forth really, really fast in the parades. Well, that last year, he couldn't run fast. He couldn't run at all. And so he would stand on the back of the bus in the parades and wave. But here was the amazing part of the story. He had energized so many people in these green shirts to run around that bus in this continuous motion that you didn't even notice he wasn't running himself. 
And that's what I'm asking you to do for me in these next two days, to understand that I'm going to have to go back to Washington again to vote, uh, that it's not everything I thought was going to happen this week, but that we have momentum because of people like you, because of people that are willing to come out on this beautiful winter day and come in here to hear me talk. I need your help. I need you to commit to caucus. Uh, my favorite story about Iowa was Kay, the mayor, former mayor of Cedar Rapids, who after an hour-long breakfast with me said to me at the end of the breakfast, I have great news for you. I said, what's that, Kate? She said, I'm 78% with you. <laughs> she got to 100%, as did, by the way, more legislators than any other candidate in this race who have endorsed me in the state of Iowa. So I need you to come with me, to run around that bus for me, to do it for the next two days, and to go to caucus, and we will win this. Thank you, Sioux City. Thank you guys.